Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. This episode, I'm going to reflect on some big themes from 2021, as well as some of my favorite podcasts from this year. There's so many things we could say about this past year, but I'll start here. If 2020 was the year of the left losing its mind, using the death of George Floyd as a pretext for the racialization of everything, then in some ways, 2021 was the year of the right losing its mind, primarily over the pandemic, but also over Trump's defeat. We began this year with an event that looked like a South Park episode played out in real life. The storming of the Capitol building by nutjobs convinced that the election had been stolen. And this was egged on by a president that had no respect for the norms of democracy and the peaceful transition of power. For four years, many of us, myself included, were wondering whether Trump was all talk in his authoritarianism. Was he really a strongman who admired people like Putin? Or was he just a master negotiator, where every scary claim he makes should really be interpreted as a kind of first offer, an attempt to shift the Overton window so that he eventually gets the more moderate thing that he actually wants? That argument was more or less put to rest when he actually tried to steal the election. Yet somehow, even with the Capitol riot, the left did not miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. The popular talking point in the aftermath of the riot was, look what happens when white people riot. The police do nothing. But when black people riot, they come in with tear gas and bullets. Put aside for a moment the many differences between a once-in-a-century storming of the Capitol and the litany of predictable riots that occurred in major cities in 2020. Even if this were an apples-to-apples comparison, there's still the fact that a person actually did get killed in the Capitol riot, Ashley Babbitt, and it just so happens that she was an unarmed white woman, and she was killed by a black cop, who was then cleared of all wrongdoing. This is the sort of thing that's not supposed to happen under the BLM narrative that dominated the country in 2020. But listeners to my podcast will know that white people get killed by cops pretty often, It just doesn't make the news. And the only reason Ashley Babbitt made the news is because her death occurred during the Capitol riot, as opposed to a traffic stop or an arrest. This is a sort of thing that should have introduced doubt into the worldview of anyone who thinks that the cops only kill black people, or that the source of the problem is racism. But unfortunately, it didn't. Somehow, many people on the left still remember the Capitol riot as yet more evidence of police bias. Still, in many ways, this was the year of the right losing its mind. And the machine of misinformation about vaccines is exhibit A here. 38% of the nation is not fully vaccinated. And this is largely due to right-wing media pushing falsehoods about the safety of the vaccine. They say the vaccine is unsafe because it was rushed, or its long-term effects are poorly understood, and that's a reason not to take it. 
or that it can't be trusted because big pharma is making so much money off it, which interestingly used to be a far-left anti-vax talking point. Or that there was a conspiracy to suppress positive findings about ivermectin and other therapeutics because there's no money to be made in it. And this deluge of lies and half-truths has seduced many people who are usually reasonable, and it's cost people their lives. And Trump is not to blame for this one. Trump supports the vaccines and even the booster and has recently made some enemies on the right by reiterating the fact that vaccines work. So Trump is on the right side of this issue and even his influence on the right doesn't seem to make a dent. Like anti-vaxxers, I don't always trust the so-called experts because expert opinion is often contaminated by groupthink and political bias. And like many people in my audience, I find the mantra, trust the science, to be annoying. Because every politician who says it will deny science the moment it reaches an inconvenient conclusion. So I share these general attitudes. And I think a lot of people in the so-called intellectual dark web share these attitudes. But the reasons to mistrust the vaccines just don't hold up. For starters, the worry that these vaccines are a new technology disappears the moment you've done double-blind trials with tens and tens of thousands of people and monitor them closely for side effects for many months, which is what happened before these vaccines were authorized. In the case of Pfizer, study participants were monitored for six months after their second shot before it was fully authorized by the FDA. So is it possible that there could be serious side effects that somehow don't show up for years? This is a common worry among anti-vaxxers. And the answer is yes, it's possible, but only in the most literal and irrelevant sense of that word. You actually can't disprove a negative claim that extends forever into the future. For instance, really prove to me that it's impossible a biological male will ever give birth. You can tell me it's never happened before. You can tell me all the ways in which it violates principles of biology. But you can't prove to me that it will for sure never happen. I mean, how would you even go about proving that? Established science has been wrong before, right? So it's not just that hidden long-term side effects are unlikely. It's that there's no plausible mechanism by which this could happen. These mRNA vaccines work by injecting messenger RNA into the cytoplasm of your cells. Then your cells build proteins the mRNA can't cross the barrier into the nucleus of the cell, and it can't alter your DNA, as some people worry. That just can't happen. All it can do is enter the cytoplasm, make proteins, and then after a few days, it disintegrates. I'm not aware of anyone that has proposed a plausible mechanism by which this process even could lead to serious side effects that somehow don't show up for years. So not only is there no empirical evidence of this happening, there's also no theoretical reason to worry that it might happen. Meanwhile, we know that people are getting long COVID symptoms, many of which are neurological. And I'm surprised people don't discuss this aspect more because it really is a game changer. COVID can infect and damage your brain cells. Scientists believe it enters the brain through the nose and damages cells called astrocytes which make up a large portion of your brain. And this is why people with long COVID feel foggy for months. And let's be clear, 
brain fog is a euphemism for short-term brain damage. And we don't know how short-term it is. Worst case scenario, this could be a chronic illness for people, even young, healthy people. So if you're worried about long-term health problems, that's all the more reason to get vaxxed. The one valid concern that's emerging around the mRNA vaccines is myocarditis, or heart inflammation, especially in young men, and especially with Moderna. And I should insert here that I'm not a doctor, and you should not take what I'm saying as medical advice. That said, we've known for a while that myocarditis can occur as part of your immune response, both to COVID itself and to the vaccines. But we were told by the CDC for a long time that the risk of this happening from getting the virus was higher than from getting the vaccines. Now that's turning out not to be true, at least for men under 40. According to one paper from Canada, which I can link to in the description, roughly 1 in 3,000 men between the ages of 18 and 24 got myocarditis after their second Moderna shot. This number drops if you wait longer between shots or if you take Pfizer. And for this reason, Germany and France have already recommended that men under 30 take Pfizer instead of Moderna because of this. And uh, if the CDC were a high-functioning organization, we probably would have followed suit by now. So how worrisome is myocarditis? One in 3,000 is not nothing at all if you're a guy around my age or younger, especially if you have reason to worry that you're especially vulnerable to heart problems. That said, the vast majority of these myocarditis cases are mild and people recover fine. A small minority are hospitalized and according to the Nature website, there are eight recorded deaths in the world. So even allowing for some underreporting here, that's Eight total deaths worldwide out of almost 4 billion people who've been vaccinated. Compare that to the over 4,000 people between the ages of 18 and 29 who've died of COVID just in America. So the mortality risk levels here are just many, many orders of magnitude apart, even for the demographic that is most at risk for myocarditis. And this is also a problem with a fairly simple policy solution for young men, which is to take Pfizer instead of Moderna and to space out the doses. In any event, I've tried to do my part combating misinformation this year by having Peter Doherty and Nicholas Christakis on the show, but I'm left feeling that I probably could have done more. For instance, I could have done a solo podcast like this one much sooner. This year, I've also tried to be as transparent as possible about when my opinions change. And you may remember I had the rare pleasure of changing my mind on a hot-button culture war issue, anti-CRT laws. These laws banned public schools from teaching certain ideas as truth, that one race is inherently privileged or disadvantaged, that an individual should be held responsible for the past misdeeds of members of their race, and many similar ideas that fall under the penumbra of wokeness. I read the laws closely, and it seemed clear to me that they weren't banning texts like Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, or even the autobiography of Malcolm X. So although I was agnostic about whether or not the laws were a good thing, 
I dismissed the concern that they would lead to censorship. No sooner did I express this view than an advocacy group called Moms for Liberty invoked the law to try to get their county school board to ban several books. Among the images they wanted to ban were Norman Rockwell's famous painting of Ruby Bridges walking to school, with the N-word written behind her, and an image depicting racially segregated water fountains. In other words, mainstream images from American history. At one level, my mistake was assuming that everyone would parse the language of the law the same way I did. But at a deeper level, my mistake was forgetting that bad actors will always bend the rule of law to their benefit. And you can listen to the episode with Camille Foster called From the Bottom Up for more on that topic. Not only does my opinion sometimes change, but the situation on the ground sometimes changes. And I'm going to try to tailor my guests this year to the situations in the culture that most need addressing. This past year with the Delta wave, anti-vax misinformation was at the top of my list of priorities. But as Delta fades into Omicron, which is much milder, the problem of overly draconian COVID policy may become just as big an issue. Right now, for instance, Biden is attempting to circumvent Congress and mandate that all private businesses with 100 employees or more require their employees to get vaccinated. Businesses also have the option of requiring that employees show weekly negative tests, but employees would have to pay for these tests themselves, and they're not cheap. So at a minimum, this would be a heavy tax on low-income anti-vaxxers, and at most it would be the federal government requiring adults to put something in their veins in order to have a job. And it has a dubious connection to protecting others in the business. Is this really necessary? Does it even meet the legal requirement that gives OSHA emergency powers to prevent, quote, grave danger in the workplace? I don't think so. Especially given that vaccinated people are around as likely to catch Omicron as the unvaxxed. There's no guarantee that the Supreme Court will allow this, but as the pandemic situation becomes less deadly, our policies should become less draconian. And being tough on COVID has become an identity marker on the left. So this is one of my worries going into 2022. In many ways, I'm still just getting my footing with this podcast, and I really plan to up my game this year as an interviewer and speaker. So I'm going to be ramping up my members-only content as well as my public content. I'm also on schedule to finish my book manuscript this year, which is very exciting. And I'm also venturing back into hip-hop this year. Some of you may know that before I was a writer and podcaster, I was a Juilliard-trained jazz musician, rapper, and producer. So after a long hiatus from music, I'm coming out with a music video on January 17th. And I don't want to give too much away, but it deals with a lot of the themes that I deal with on this show, especially freedom of speech and censorship. So that's what's coming up. But looking back, this past year was really a great one for the show. And that's in no small part due to the amazing support that I get from all of you. We had a lot of great guests this year, and I just want to remind you of some of my favorite episodes 
So you can go back and listen again or listen for the first time if you miss them. So in no particular order, here are some of my favorite episodes from this past year. So the first is my episode with Anthony Barksdale called American Policing in Crisis. Anthony Barksdale was acting commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department from 2007 to 2012. And we discussed everything related to police use of force against civilians. I was really amazed by Anthony's depth of wisdom and experience as a police officer. Anthony is a guy with a lifetime of experience being the person deployed to the scene where there is a potentially violent person and having to make judgment calls that involve his own life and the lives of others. And this is in Baltimore, which is one of the toughest cities in America. And he's now retired and able to speak freely. And he has decades of congealed wisdom about policing. He has an incredible mind, and he's such a brilliant guide on all of these issues. I mean, the man has a black belt in jujitsu, and he tried to train all of the cops under him in jujitsu so they could have confidence de escalating situations without using weapons. He's just incredible. So if you missed that episode, I highly recommend you stop listening to this right now and start listening to that. It's called American Policing in Crisis with Anthony Barksdale, and that came out in June. Okay, another one I really enjoyed is The Tale of a Radical with Jesse Morton. Jesse Morton lived an incredible life. And I say lived here because Jesse actually tragically died last month at only 43 years old. And uh, I, I don't know anything other than rumors about the cause of his death. But he really did live a full life and he will be missed. Um, Just to give a little summary, Jesse was an American convert to radical Islam who, long story short, ended up getting de-radicalized and doing amazing work to de-radicalize others from extremist movements of all kinds. Um, he's really a person that turned his suffering into positivity for the world. And I only got to hang out with Jesse once, but I can say he was an extremely warm and compelling guy in real life. And some of that comes through in my conversation with him. So that's the tale of a radical with Jesse Morton, which came out in October. Okay, another one of my favorites from this year was The Transgender Revolution with Helen Joyce. Helen is among the most clear-eyed critics of what she calls trans-activist ideology. We discussed everything related to gender identity, gender transition, sex-segregated spaces, and so forth. And this is a topic I've been doing more research on since I discussed it with her and then later with Michelle Telfer. And I'm actually going to do a long solo episode on this topic very soon because I've been getting a lot of criticisms and questions that I think are worth addressing at length. But in the meantime, if you're at all confused by or interested in the national conversation on gender identity and trans issues, then I highly recommend this episode. That's The Transgender Revolution with Helen Joyce, which came out in September.
And finally, one of my favorite episodes from this year was A Life Without Problems with Ryan Holiday. That episode was all about stoicism. We talked about anxiety, suffering, meditation, emotional self-control, ego, Trump and Kanye, trauma, attention, and much more. I really enjoyed that one. That one's called A Life Without Problems with Ryan Holiday, and it was released in October. All right, so that brings me to the end of this episode. As always, thank you so much for your continued support, and welcome to 2022. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.